Welcome to the Sideline Podcast. Today is Monday, May 18th, and we are getting back to our roots today, people. My name is Justin Berger, and I'm joined by Doug Watley and Alec Keezer. We've got the last two episodes of The Last Dance, as well as a related best of, and a little later, we'll be introducing a new segment. Let's jump right into the documentary, and Doug, let's start with you, and let's start with Reggie Miller and those 98 Pacers. The documentary right away started off with... (laughs) the fight on the court between Reggie Miller and Michael Jordan. And I thought that was a great way to introduce this rivalry that they had because that was what it was. They were two alpha males, each a state over from each other, but also had that mutual respect for each other that you heard Michael talk and then you heard about Reggie talk. Um, But that rivalry, it's unfortunate because I wish in a sense that it was Western Conference versus Eastern Conference, so you could see it in the finals, and then who knows, that rivalry could have been there for the 97 and 98 years, Um, but overall, Reggie Miller got his words in, and he was really proud of the fact that, you know what, we never topped Michael Jordan, but we were right there, and if anyone was going to do it, it was going to be us, and if they came back that next year, I thought we would have had them, so I thought that confidence by Reggie Miller just never faded, and that's why Michael has this utmost respect for him. Yeah. And Jeez, I, I know we go ahead. I, I know we talked about yesterday the and I think you're gonna bring this up, but we talked about the nicknames Reggie Miller gave for MJ <laughs> and that he never called him MJ anymore. Just nah. Black Jesus or that black cat. Yeah, he used to call him all sorts of nicknames, but that goes back to a story from his his rookie year. But I think Doug just touched on it. But the way they opened the ninth episode I think just speaks to how Jordan Air hand or I keep calling him Jordan Air because Michael Jordan, but Jason Ayer, the director of this doc, did a phenomenal job. Um, his music choices, his stylistic choices, um, the editing choices, but they start off even before the credits roll with this fight um, after coming off of the way they ended eight with Reggie Miller saying they thought they were going to take out the Bulls. And so I thought that sequencing was incredible. And then Reggie Miller goes into the black, don't ever talk trash to black Jesus, the MJ story. Um, that whole sequence was incredible. I also thought another thing that's great about this 98 Pacers team is that the personalities on it, not only do you have Reggie Miller, but you also have Jalen Rose, who's one of my favorite media personalities, and I love listening to him talk about the game of basketball just because of who he was around, um, his upbringing, the way he looks at things. And then the coach of that team is Larry Bird, who, I mean, I don't have to sit here and explain Larry Bird or what he meant to the game <laughs> of basketball to anybody, but in his relationship with Jordan, we see, uh, I think, as nine and – um, where they embrace after the 98 um, Eastern Conference Finals and MJ's trash-talking and tell him to go work on his golf game. It was just incredible. That trash-talking between – that that exchange between Larry and MJ at the end was Legendary. amazing. And it, may, and it didn't make that episode because episode 9 was fantastic for so many reasons. But you have this guy who was playing professional basketball five years ago, was on the dream team with MJ, and now he's coaching against them. And just like, screw you, go work on your golf game. Like, that was hilarious to watch about. Um, for me, the thing that stuck out the most about the ninth episode was it kind it kind of felt like the Steve Kerr episode. Um, I know for us, we all talked last night like we usually do every Sunday because we're BFFs. But Steve Kerr's father, we didn't know that story. I knew nothing about that story. And hearing about what he went through as a college-age student – whose dad had just been murdered in a foreign country and how he came back from that was incredible. Yeah, incredible is the right way to put it. I also want to credit Hare again because in episode two and episode three, it was hard-hitting stuff for Michael's teammates and Scotty and Rodman. But then it's really been about Michael since then. But Hare saved the Steve Kerr stuff and his background and his upbringing until it really meant something and when he hit that shot it it felt like the perfect 8 to 10 to 12 however long minutes that segment was just fit right um and steve curry can go on and on about how good of a role player he was how good of a coach now he is there's a bunch of different aspects to him um and just kind of all of them combined fit into that background and who he is and what he stands for you see him on twitter nowadays and he's not silent about what he believes, whether it's politics, whether it's um, basketball-related, whether whatever it is, he's very outspoken and knows and, and knowledgeable about it, too. Um, and I think that 
it's part of him being a player and playing with Michael Jordan, being a coach with some of the best players in the league now, and also broadcasting because that gives you a different perspective as well. So Steve Curry, I agree. I think that was my favorite part of episode nine and maybe my favorite part of the whole thing from a production value point was that 10, 12 minute segment. Yeah. Um, Jason Ayer, again, you can't say enough good things about the way he handled the production side of this documentary. He was asking the hard-hitting questions. It's not easy for you to sit there and try and drag this kind of emotion out of somebody or ask the tough questions like that. Um, and the fact that he was able to do so in a, such a genuine way. And like you said, it was a 10- to 12-minute segment about Steve Kerr that was one of the best in the entire entire series. And I think that's one of the reasons why I told you guys last night that I thought Episode Nine was, was my favorite. They have the, the sequence at the beginning with the the – Pacers and the, all the Indiana fans and all like the that woman screaming like uh, in your F, in your fucking face in your Pacers fucking face lady. and yeah oh incredible um, and then they have the like the Purdue drummer in the beginning fuck Purdue um, they're <laughs> repping losers so that was great but just the whole the the way that they decided to tell this story and how he held the Kerr stuff until episode nine because he had del- delved into MJ's teammates a little bit earlier. I just thought the creative choices were like really good. You saw how Hare asked Kerr if he ever talked about their dads with Michael Jordan before, and Kerr said, "You know what? Nope, that that never came up between us." Do you think that them talking about it would make it better, or do you think it's just kind of Michael's personality to kind of stay away and stick to himself and his family, and pretty much that's his whole persona? up until now is to be kind of silent but also be very um just kind of let everything else speak for him so do you think it would have been a big difference if they talked about that um i think especially when it comes to tragedies and for somebody um and i obviously i don't know michael jordan at all but he seems like he's somebody who keeps keeps things very close to, to the chest yeah you that's really the type of deep things that you discuss with like a close friend or, or something like you can be great teammates with somebody um, or even effective teammates with somebody and not get to that level of friendship. I think it's a just something that was so that hurt so much for both of them in, in the same and different ways that it was just like, why even revisit that pain? They both in, in my eyes, knowing Steve Kerr as a coach now um, and MJ as the player, they had jobs to do. And this would have affected their job in a negative way, obviously because it was both a painful spot for both of them. So they just decided to not talk about it and continue to play basketball on an elite level. I do want to talk about Kerr for a minute, just to appre- I know people appreciate him, but I don't know if he gets enough credit because yes, he was a role player for the Bulls. He stepped into what stepped into Paxson's shoes and filled them marvelous, marvelously, won three championships. But then. He helped guide the Spurs ship after he was released, I think, by the traded. Bulls. Traded. traded. So he was traded to San Antonio. Then they won the championship that year with David Robinson and a young Tim Duncan. Um, and then left the Spurs and then came back and won again with David Robinson in his last year and Tim Duncan and Manu. No, Tony Parker. Tony Parker was young. But he won two championships with the Spurs. Learned from Greg Popovich then went on to be, I think it was in the Suns front office, and the Suns, we learned, who drafted him. He was a vice president of basketball operations for the Suns, Mm -hmm. then got bored with that, then worked with TV, and then he got bored with TV and became one of the best head coaches in our generation. Um, He used to say that he would keep notebooks of plays that that he would watch as an analyst. So he always had an idea that he was going to go into coaching. He is, he's got got eight, sorry, he's got... um, yeah, he's got eight championship rings, three with the Bulls, two with the Spurs, three with the Warriors. And you argue he's one of the greatest basketball people of all time, whether it's rings or personality or just even skill level. He's still got the highest three-point percentage. So people yeah, – we did we did our role-player draft like two or three weeks ago, and I stole him in the fourth round. And right. I thought that was a disgrace. Um, and I think – like we were talking about last night with a couple of other things we've done recently. If we do that today, Steve Kerr is definitely a lot higher on that list for all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, let's go 
we we just did the 98 Pacers, but I guess we need to bounce back because we're following the documentary. So now we're going back to 97. So follow me if you can, 96, 97. First championship against Utah. Let's start. Jordan had another great season, and then we get to the 96-97 finals, and we've playing Carl Malone and John Stockton. Who well, wants the entire, to take that, this one? That entire finals is the beginning of it's overshadowed by the fact that Carl Malone is awarded the 1997 MVP award, and it was clearly Michael Jordan's award. It shouldn't have gone to Carl Malone. He wasn't the best Man, player. I, wouldn't, that, I don't know if I would say that. I mean, it's a regular season award. I think Carl Malone, if you look at the stats, obviously we weren't there. But I felt like Michael, he said in the documentary that, you know what, maybe he did deserve that award, but that's going to fuel me up. Yeah, I don't know. Um, anybody who like I follow who follows basketball history and like is all over that kind of stuff, so, like that was one of the ones that's just one of the more egregious MVP choices. But, I mean... That, like Brian Russell is guarding MJ, and MJ is talking about how he couldn't guard him because he stood on his toes. Uh, Ninety-seven, they were like Stuart Scott on the on the call on some of these games. Like it was ninety-seven was a dogfight. Ninety-seven was definitely a dogfight. The big takeaways I have from that were one, you mentioned Brian Russell, and if you know that story, MJ told it very well. Where <laughs> Russell was kind of talking shit, saying you retired because you know I can guard you, and your reign was over. And Michael comes back and wins that finals right in front of him. Um, so that was special. But also I thought that whole kind of aroma between 96, that championship, and then 97, the next one. So the, between the fourth and the fifth one, just a total 180 of emotion. I feel like 96 was emotional. It was for his father. It was him back in basketball. And they were at the top of the basketball world again. Now 97 was, all right, well, we're here to stay. Let's have some fun. Let's jump up on the scorer's table, hold up our number fives, and and be that person. So I thought that was a big takeaway for me. Obviously, the talent level, I think, and this is another part of it, where Michael was using his head more than ever these last two finals against the Jazz um, and just adjusted with the times. And I thought him being comfortable and him, you know, not really, obviously he was still thinking about his dad and that was still part of it, but that first championship I thought really kind of set that aside and then now it was more about himself. Are we going to talk about game five and the flu game? I was just the about to say flu that. Game? Um, yeah, the flu game in quotes. It's The the rumors are finally ra- laid to rest. It, it started coming out in the last couple of weeks that was it the flu game or was it actually something much less potent, I guess? But it, it, MJ puts it to rest, says it is the food poisoning game. But the story that came out of it was just hilarious and strange at the same time there's not a single restaurant open in utah and mj's starving they don't have room service in the hotel there's the only place opens a pizza place and five guys deliver the pizza mj eats the entire thing by himself and gets food poisoning like like that's that's ridiculous but if you look and you watch that game over again he gets stronger as the game goes on and so i think he kind of played himself or sweated out of it or, or whatever happened but I mean, the beginning of that game, he looks like absolute shit. I've tried to take in so much media about this one game and, like, hear all these different angles from it. A couple of things that I've learned. One, this was a story that was told by her, I think this morning, maybe last night, um, that Michael Jordan spit on his food on the pizza so that nobody else would eat it. And this is literally what the director said, and he says that Michael said it on record. They never put it in the documentary for whatever reason. Um, but this is like, this is mine. And apparently this was a normal thing for Michael to do insane, crazy. I don't know. Um, but like you said, another thing that I heard Tim Grover talk about is, all right, Michael, if you're going to play this game, the big key is if once you get going, you cannot stop because you're going to get exhausted. You're going to get fatigued. That's part of it. Once you get in your groove, try to take as little breaks as you can, because if you take more, that's going to slow you down. So I thought the fact that he was he was producing at the end still, even though he was a little bit short at times and he adjusted, was an act to him pushing himself and not taking rest because that would have made him worse. And then we go to game six, Keys. I know you wanted to talk about um, the speech from game six. Yeah, the 
Steve Kerr, like who is obviously we've just been talking about for the last ten minutes, has been a theme this entire episode. But one of the reasons for this is because uh, at the end of Game Six, or one of the things they were doing at the end of games, is they were doubling Jordan with Stockton. And so obviously, if you double with the point guard, then you leave the point guard open. So Jordan knew that if Stockton came on the double, Steve Kerr would be open. So he leans to Kerr and kind of mumbles to him, and the cameras caught this, so which is why Jordan's mumbling. But he's saying to him. If they double, if they come, be ready. And Steve Kerr says it in the doc. He goes, I was oblivious to the cameras. I just go, if if he comes, I'll be ready. I'll be ready. Um, the double comes. Steve Kerr hits the shot to win it. And as MJ says, he earned his wings. And then at the championship parade after, he has the legendary speech where he goes up to the podium and he says, you know, Phil wanted to call that last play for Michael, but Michael said he, he, you know, he wasn't sure about about taking the shot in that situation. So let's have Steve take it. And he goes, I had to, I had to bail Michael out again. Um, it's a great story, incredible moment. Um, that just projected what Steve Kerr was going to be able to do the rest of his career, but it was kind of the first glimpse we really had of that personality. So that was awesome. That's got to be the top parade comments of all time, I feel like. That, that like, comedy, but also just, like, not telling the whole story, just kind of getting right to the point. Perfect by Steve Kerr. Hey, Steve Kerr was up there doing a comedy routine. It was perfect. It was great. Right in front uh, of Michael Jordan, too. Yeah. Um, I get, we'll go 97-98 now. We covered the Pacers already in the uh, conference finals. Obviously, that was also the year they played uh, Charlotte in the round before against B.J. Armstrong. We got that a couple episodes ago, those stories. Uh, and then all we got left is to do Utah one more time. This time they come back. Apparently, obviously, we weren't alive for this, but apparently, it was felt around the league that the Jazz were stronger this year because they had championship experience. Now, even though the team didn't change that much, obviously, you still have Stockton and Malone. Um, someone talked to me about the '98 Finals. Well, the '98 Finals, to like to a lot of people, actually, um, not just to me, is the more impressive one because of how tired that team was at the end. And it really probably should have ended in five games, but Carl Malone played his best game in both finals to date in game five. But that you could just tell that Bulls team was kind of like running on fumes. But th- that 98 Jazz team didn't really have a third scorer. They had Stockton, who was passed first and probably should have shot more. But, I mean, what are you going to tell? The- I mean, he pro- led the league in assists by the time he retired. What are you going to tell that guy? They had Malone, obviously. And then their third option was Hornacek, I think, who was 35. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't a... I don't know if it was the better team. They just caught the Bulls at a worse time, I think. What a terrible uh, – just to sidetrack for a second. What a terrible coaching career Jeff Hornacek had. I recognize, <laughs> I knew he played for like a championship team, but he coached the Suns for a year and I think the Knicks for a year, and he was well, I mean, fired much so quick. You don't even remember who he was. It was tough for him. But go ahead, Doug. The big takeaway from 98 that I have is – I said earlier, the way that they adjusted, and Keezer mentioned it too, is adjustment after adjustment. You know, they're not, at this time, they're older, they're more strategic, but they're probably not as energetic as the Jazz were at this point. And Michael would probably hate me and kill me for saying that, but just the way that their bodies work in the human body, the younger players are going to have more energy. Um, but the way that Michael Jordan came back, especially with Scottie Pippen and his injury, and he was just a decoy. Tony Kukoc, by the way, underrated in this whole thing. I thought he deserved more time because, one, he gets all these late shots, and he hits most of them, or at least the ones that we see. Um, and his journey from overseas to the Bulls and joining the best player of all time, I thought deserved a little bit more. Yeah, but, I, 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 I'm with you. I came away from the dock thinking Kukoc looked great, or, yeah. or at least looked better than I ever thought he was. And then you listen to Simmons and Marcillo talk about it, and they kind of just like dismiss Kukoc and talk about how he really wasn't that great in any of the series. So it'd be interesting to see like what's actually the case. Like, like am I just looking at the documentary and seeing the five clips where Kukoc came through, or am I missing something? I don't know. Yeah, and then just the final thing. Um, I thought the way that the game six, I just thought it ended poetically. And it's funny because I say poetically, Michael Jordan, we found out later, would write a poem about, pretty much about that and the whole team. But I just thought the way he crossed over, people argued it was a push-off that goes to today, obviously, but I don't, I don't think, think so. Off. Um, no. But it's just arguments that people want to make. It's like, 
all right, well, who's the best player of all time? People think it's Michael. People know it's Michael. It's, it's People want to argue about whatever, um, but just a way to end that. And that last minute, just not that one shot, but the way that he got a stop, um, mm-hmm. stole the ball from Malone and, and yeah, the, the executed not following on offense. Hornacek, weak side and coming back. Yeah. And take, oh. I wanna, very smart. It wasn't athleticism. It was his brains. You brought up the doc ending, and I want to get there, but we haven't touched on one thing that I did want to talk about, um, and that's Utah, just the stadium. And we got if you listened, and if you haven't, you should. When we talked to Bob Rathbun a couple weeks ago, he talked about how he enjoys stadiums that are full. And Utah's stadium is always full. Their their fans are loud. The thing that I kept noticing the most in the episode was how many freaking people were wearing earplugs in the stadium or in the arena. Yeah, I should so say. many people. And, Why, and, and um, then they had Michael Buffer I, to open it up, and and they had well, they interviewed um, MJ's um, sons. For yeah. Brief. I thought they were going to make more of an appearance in the documentary, but that was a creative decision they made. But they weren't allowed to go to the games in Utah because of the fans. I think yeah. that was something that kind of got lost in the shuffle a little bit in the beginning of episode 10. But that's like, – they couldn't go to the games. The only two people that denied – or the main two people that denied interviews, Carl Malone and Brian Russell, by the way. I found that out yesterday. And it makes sense because they talked to Brian and they know he's just going to be talking about what did you say to Michael? How did you feel about him coming back at you? And then Carl Malone, I, I don't really know him and his story much, but I felt like it but was just a But he played like thing. shit in the finals. He, yeah. he, also, like, he didn't play great in, in most of the finals games. So classy what, what move from Malone on the bus Oh, yeah, going after on the, the bus after – yeah, very classy. Yeah, but I just I, – I felt like we should mention the uh, – the crowd in Utah because it is a little bit of a callback to a former episode for us. Let's uh, let's get general. I guess not general yet. Let's talk about the ending of the doc and then we'll get general. What what did you guys think of the last? Let's call it, let's call it after the last commercial. What do you think after that? I just and I mean we're going to introduce a new segment later in the show and I don't want to step too much on the toes of that. But the fact that this team breaks up after ninety eight is still baffling. Like it doesn't make any sense, and and MJ even says it himself. He just looks looks at the iPad and he he's just perplexed, and he says, "I really think I I don't know if we would have won it, but why couldn't we have just gone for the seventh? Like he's like, if I came back, if Phil came back, Scotty would have probably would have came back. The problem is they would have had to pay people. They need yeah. the the um like rehash the Phil and Kraus relationship. Um, they needed to replace Rodman, and there wasn't really a guy out there, but. How, as an owner, how do you, how is Jerry Reinsdorf let Michael Jordan walk out the door? I was going to say the same thing. Reinsdorf comes out of this documentary. By the way, the man he has. He looks like a chump. He's got seven championship rings six with the Bulls, one with the White Sox. And the man looks like a complete idiot at the end of this thing mm-hmm. because he couldn't figure out how to manage the relationship between his championship coach and his championship GM. You got to be able to put that aside. Throw a little money mm-hmm. at the players and go after ring number seven. I just I don't get it. And the man's own yeah. the man's own teams for like thirty five years now. It's bananas. Yeah. And I every time he talked, time. every time he talked, I felt like it was so robotic too. It and like was. he didn't have any energy. It felt like he was reading off the script and what his lawyer told him to say and make him sound best. Yeah, he he looked and sounded like a snotty old rich white guy who wasn't gonna take advice from anybody who he didn't trust and he, he looks like a chump there's no other way to put it i loved hearing from scotty at the end um about by the way scotty in the second half of the documentary did not get a lot of interview time it wasn't really about him but i noticed the real drop off in scotty interviews but when he well, said his, his up and down was incredible of him yeah. looking horrible that one game and then all of a sudden he fought through his injury to be a decoy in Game Six, so I thought his bounce back was enough for me. When uh, they played, they dubbed it up where Marv Albert was calling the finals game, and he was like, "Scotty's got to be a decoy right now." And they cut immediately to Scotty, and he was like, "I was a decoy the entire game." I thought that another incredibly well done thing. Well, by actually, hair. the thing, the thing, um, what was interesting in '98 is that. Bob Costas is on the call for the finals because Marv Albert had gotten suspended 
Oh, and yeah, I'll you're let, right. I'll let you guys go do some digging on why he got suspended, but it's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, oh, I didn't know not, not in a good way. I didn't and it doesn't reflect positively on Marv, but um, if you want to, go take a look. Um, but I thought the ending of the documentary was well done. We talked about the music already, Doug. We talked about ending with Pearl Jam last night. Um, I thought that was a great way to end it. And then you get the story about what Phil Jackson does in the uh, – oh, I didn't even finish my point. Sorry. Uh, Scotty, for all the crappy things he said about Jerry Krause, he admitted at the end he was – he is of the best GM of all time in Scotty's Which eyes. Which is hyperbole. Right. Because the team – like everybody leaves and, and they're I, – I, Doug, you can attest. The Bulls are still rebuilding. Yeah. You can't be the you can't be the best GM and let that team go. You can be right. the best GM for eight years, that's fine. But to have that title still with you after letting that happen, and not doing sense. anything else after that, like you, like it was yeah. all MJ. You won titles yeah. because of and Michael Jordan. I wish. Sorry, Justin. I want to get no. You're fine. Point. I wish Kraus. Obviously, everyone wishes this. I wish he was still here to tell his side of the story mm-hmm. because who knows? Maybe he would be apologetic and say, you know what. I screwed up. I said this in the beginning of the 97-98 season. Even if Phil Jackson won, didn't lose the game, he would be fired. That doesn't make sense in anyone's world, but it did to mine at the moment, and I, I resent it, and I'm apologetic. And maybe that would have this different narrative on Jerry Krause. Who knows? But it's sad that we never get to see that. Jordan side. was saying to Krause that – or Jordan was saying about Krause – how do you bring up to your five-time championship-winning coach in Phil Jackson that yeah. you're going to fire him without even giving him a chance? Like The least you can do is not make the decision public until the end of the season. It's such a bad – forget like basketball move. It's such a bad PR move that Jerry Krause made at the beginning of that season because realistically, you can't walk that back. You can't walk back, I'm firing this guy no matter what. No, he created a media shitstorm that the entire team had to endure the entire year. Um, it just put unnecessary stress on everybody. I, I, I don't know. Because even if you go back and you watch the clips, not even in real time, but say like 10 minutes after they happened, he doesn't come off looking good in anything. And, and it, it's not just the music and it's not just the context of the documentary. Like He's just saying things that are off and don't make sense. And I can't believe that at least two people thought that that was the direction they should go in. It still is mind-boggling. We've, uh, I think we've done a good job wrapping this all up. I do want to get your final thoughts on the documentary as a whole. Yeah, I want to talk real quickly about the Phil Jackson, because we mentioned it briefly, but didn't really hit on it that much. The Zen move he did at the end of the 98 season to get everyone together and build this little fire inside of garbage can pretty much and write Coffee whatever can. you want yeah yeah write whatever you want about the team about whatever and then we'll burn it all together i thought oh, like just the way that he can help michael jordan and michael jordan's one of the most rigid people in sports but help him kind of buy into the system and doing these weird things and make sure it'll help michael jordan feel a little bit better about himself but the main point of it in my opinion is to help the teammates of Michael and Scotty know that they were worth it and they were a big piece of this and they might not get the recognition but in Michael's eyes they were needed and of course they were to win these six championships so I thought that was a really cool way to do it and it's like a very aesthetic like it it makes sense and it's a good way to wrap up this whole thing yeah well people people's Phil Jackson we we talk about it but you don't really understand until you like look at the numbers. Back-to-back championships with the Knicks as a player, six with the Bulls, then five with the Lakers. Thirteen championships. You don't just like whip up a recipe to make thirteen championships. That's years of hard work and dedication, and we see yeah. that reflected in the stuff Phil does. Yeah, I don't. I hate to keep referencing Simmons and Marcillo, but they they compared him to being the guy who was in, um, who was like twelve best man for twelve weddings, and then like does something terrible on a bachelor party and is out of the friend group automatically. Like his, his legacy, especially recently has been extremely weird, but having something like this to go back and watch the greatness happen as it happened definitely helps Phil's legacy. I think final thoughts from the documentary, just 
quickly. Um, it was fantastically produced, the editing, the directing, the creative choices, all of that. I was a huge fan of it. I thought it was a positive for MJ. He comes out of this, um, obviously, 20 years after he stopped playing. So his like his name's back in circulation. Everybody's talking about him. There, Everybody's now saying the argument is dead now. It's, it's MJ over LeBron. So everything I think he wanted to accomplish with this documentary, he did. And then I think, and I wanted to ask you guys this, um, do you think this will lead to an influx of documentaries? Are we going to see, is everybody going to now want to get into this, make a documentary about a famous sports team just because The Last Dance came out? And are any of them going to be any good? Uh, yes, I think so. And yes, I want them to be made. And no, I don't care if they're good because I'll take the media and I'll decide if it's good or not. I think it can only help. Obviously, we know we got the one about Kobe in 2016 coming out. Um, and like I saw yesterday, someone tweeted that they wanted to see one about Brady's last year in New England and uh, Dan Marino's career. I was just like, whatever the hell you want to make it about, make it and we'll decide if we want to watch it. I'm all in. Yeah, if you have the behind-the-scenes footage, like any any stuff like that, any sports yeah. fan is going to crave. Yeah, Doug. because the behind-the-scenes footage, like you just said, is what it doesn't make the documentary, but it's so crucial to kind of putting it above everything else and, and showing this different side of things that you've never seen before. So if you have that, might as well. I think, obviously, the pandemic helped this documentary in a sense of everyone coming together. There's no live sports going on, so everyone's talking about Michael Jordan, not just for the day that the documentary comes out, but the couple days after and then the couple days before the next one comes out. So I thought that helped it. I don't know. Obviously, ESPN's got a couple more coming out. They announced the next couple Sundays. I don't know if the amount of documentaries will stay this high once sports come back. I'm sure it will not, um, especially being publicized this much. But I thought this one was the one that everyone wanted to watch. It's the biggest story. I don't think maybe the only thing that could top this, and it's still too early in my opinion to release this, is a Tiger Woods documentary about him and his ups and downs. And I thought that would be cool to watch, but he's not even finished. Michael's moved on now. So I thought this just came in and here said this. It just worked out perfectly for him and, and all props to him. He did a great job with it. I too was, I've said the same thing for the last five weeks we've done this, but the from a pure X's and O's of producing something standpoint, that was in a hundred out of a hundred. You cannot direct and produce something better than what Jason Ayer did. Uh, for that, I was incredibly impressed. The interviews, every single one of them, from Carmen Electra to Barack Obama, was absolutely crucial. <laughs> Those are the and two fantastic. people you say. <laughs> yeah, right away. Um, I the having the interviews and having the game footage, great. The behind the scenes stuff, like getting the stories of the security guards, like his security team. That was cool. Getting Gus's story in episode, I think it was 10, where we got Gus's story, which was yeah, really cool. And uh, Steve Wozniak, the guy with the freaking mullet, the blonde mullet, we got his story and how he beat uh, MJ in quarters. Like Just like stuff like that, you don't get with the ABC film crew. You got That's what you need the private stuff for. So yes, I was incredibly pleased with this for five weeks. Um, next week, we touched on this, but the next two weeks, they're doing a Lance Armstrong 30 for 30, then a Bruce Lee one, and then the one we're all looking forward to is Maguire Sosa in four weeks, I think. So we'll uh, we'll touch on all those, but we'll probably go in-depth for the Maguire one. But I, I, I am incredibly grateful that we had this during this five weeks. I was really upset last night. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life on Sundays now that this is over. But we do have one more final best of relating to the last dance and we are doing best of bulls challengers so the way this works um new new space for this segment by the way not at the end of the show we got a new end of the show segment but this one you have 24 choices and the order is justin doug alec your 24 choices consist of the six years the Bulls won the championship. So you got four teams from each year, six Western Conference teams, 18 Eastern Conference teams, and I have the first pick, and I think it is a no-doubter. 
I'm going with the 97-98 Indiana Pacers that the Bulls beat 4-3 in the Eastern Conference Finals. We talked enough about it. I really don't need to I, I don't need to explain myself. Yeah. MJ objection? called it his toughest. MJ called it his toughest challenge. I have Indiana at the top of my board. I know Doug has Indiana at the top of his board. Um, consensus number one overall pick. Can't can't argue with you there. The most relevant team to never win a championship. Reggie Miller, Jalen Rose, Chris Mullen, Mark Jackson, Dale Davis, IU connection with Trace Jackson, um, Fred Hoiberg, Larry Bird, all part of that team. They're all relevant to this day in the basketball world. And obviously, Michael said that it's his biggest challenge, so no questioning that. Mark Jackson, worst analyst of all time. Hand down, man down. Disagree. Um, <laughs> number two, I'm going to go with the team that he said was kind of rivaling this team, the Pistons. I'm going to go with the 90-91 Pistons. Because when he talked about the Pacers, he said the Pacers were the hardest team besides the Pistons. And obviously he, he beat them this year, but this was a big stepping stone, obviously, the, the first one to him attaining greatness. And this Pistons team still had all the key players on their team. Isaiah Thomas, uh, Mark Aguirre, Dennis Rodman was on the team at the time. Bill Lambert, it's of course the team that walked out on the Bulls after they lost. They did get swept, so that's the negative downfall of it, but they still were extremely competitive. I think, Doug, this is, this deserves to be in the top 12. I think it's an overreach with second overall. I also because Keys Keys is getting really... absolute cherries on top with these next two pick. I think, All but right. I, I I I I'm a little nervous here because I have the two teams in mind, but I think I'm gonna get scrutinized a little on the year for both of them. I'm gonna my first pick, so the back end of the first round, I'm going with the '97 Utah Jazz. That was the Malone MVP year. I know the team technically was a little better in '98 or whatever. They were like waiting for the Bulls in the finals, but. Um, Simmons says that this Utah team was better than the 98 team, so I'm going to take his word for it. Um, and then, I again, I'm stuck here, but I'm going to go with the 93 New York Knicks over the 92 Knicks. I know the 92 Knicks took wow. the Bulls to seven games, but the 93 Knicks were the better team in the regular season. So, I'm again, splitting hairs with that one, but I'm going to go with the 97 Jazz and the 93 Knicks. I, uh, uh, two, again, two teams I had on my list. This is working out well for me so far. That's all I'll say. All right, I'll pick up on that. It's the, like you just said, Alec, it's the only other team besides the Pacers that took this Bulls team to seven games. I'm going with the 91-92 Knicks. Um, They took them to seven games that season. They lost in game seven. They had Patrick Ewing. He averaged 27, no, 24 that year. Mark Jackson, 11. Um, Charles Oakley was on that team, Greg Anthony. So very talented team. And, you know, to, to be one of the two teams to take the greatest of all time to seven games is special. That was my – the Knicks, the 91-92 Knicks were my two-second pick. Um, all audible here. I'm happy that this team's still there. I'm taking 97-98 Jazz. Uh, I think that's the natural next pick. Uh, obviously, we know we know what they're about. We just talked about them for half an hour, but Malone and Stockton in their second time in the finals, so you feel like they're a little more mature. Obviously, Keys, we disagree a little bit on that, but really with either, you can't go wrong. So uh, 97-98 Bulls, or sorry, 97-98 Jazz for my second pick. And then... Uh, That's like the Bulls, too. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm between a few on for this one, but I think this is the the next best team they faced in the championship uh, just because of the caliber player on the team. And I'm going to go 92-93 Phoenix with Charles Barkley in his MVP year. Uh, they they lost, or the Bulls won in six, so the Phoenix stole two. Chuck had an absolutely dominant series as well as a dominant season, which is why he won 92. It was his best season in the league. Um, so I think for me, out of the other three teams, championship teams remaining. I think Phoenix and Barkley is the uh, best team available there. I'm fine with that. I feel like Barkley's the great player, obviously. He's the star, but beneath him, I don't know if he has enough help. They had Danny Ainge, but not not a lot after that. Yeah, that's a team that didn't have a second scorer, so I can't fault you with star power, but 
I, I think I'm with Doug. The some of the parts wasn't wasn't good enough. All right, next up, I got my third pick. I'm going 95-96 Sonics. This is the team that um, mm. Michael beat in six games. And of course, this is when he made his comment about Gary Payton about <laughs> Gary Payton not being able to guard him, only the best defender in the league that year, just not having a chance. Um, but Gary Payton, Detlef Schrempf, uh Sean Kemp was on that team, I believe, and so just a star-studded yeah. team. And also, if you can take Michael Jordan to six games in the finals, I'll give you props as well. Kemp and Payton were the original Lob City. They they were throwing it up before anyone else was throwing it up. Um, I that clip of MJ just absolutely crapping on Gary Payton was hilarious. So I, I like that pick, Doug. Yeah, that that whole uh, Seattle was my next pick. That whole sequence, you can't argue with the talent on that Seattle team with Payton and Kemp. But I think like they weren't beating the Bulls that year, and MJ's reaction will live on for eternity in memes and and clips. And I think here's where I'm going to start getting some weird looks. But for I guess I have this back to back. But I'm going to go with the '92 Cleveland Cavaliers. This is Mark Price. Love it. This Love is it. Larry Nance, Steve Kerr, Brad Dowdy. Um, they, I think, were two and three against the Bulls in the regular season. Um, so they, had, um, you can't call that success. But in terms of the teams that played the Bulls that year, they had a lot of success. And then in the playoffs, um, it went to six games. But that was just a tough physical team. Um, they had scores. They had they had, Craig size, they had athleticism. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but they're the Cleveland kind of always hung around in the early '90s. So that team was pesky. And then I'm going to go with the 91 Los Angeles Lakers, um, the team that MJ beat for his first title. He conquers magic. Um, I think that team was – I mean, I don't think. That team was obviously towards the end of its its time. Um, and I also could have argued that 96 magic team, that even though that the 96 Bulls swept them, um, that team still had Shaq. That team still had Penny. That team had Nick Anderson. Same team that had beat the Bulls the year before, but obviously Jordan was a different player. Um, so I'm going to go with the 92 Cleveland Cavaliers and the 91 Los Angeles Lakers. Wait, wait, what were you saying about the magic right there? I was confused. Oh, I was going to say, the, um, so uh, 95, MJ comes back and obviously yeah. loses to the Bulls. And not loses to the Bulls, loses to the magic in the playoffs. Um, the next year when they swept. Okay, yeah, that was my finals, next pick. I, I was so confused. Like, did you just take them Fuck, or did you that not? That was my pick. <laughs> no, 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 so you no, didn't no, no, take no, them. I didn't Christ. take them. I didn't take them. We're no, no, talking took, too much the about the Magic. Yeah, you can <laughs> Okay, so then. No, I took the Lakers. Okay. Took the he Lakers. stole our thunder. Yeah, he's talking about the Magic. You didn't even take them. <laughs> Jesus. Um, that was my pick. And Doug, I told you. I was, I, uh, okay, so the Magic yeah. are my pick then. Like, you just kind of did my work for me. Um, they have Penny Hardaway, Shaq. Um, Horace Grant was at his peak pretty much of that year, maybe the year before. Nick Anderson, star-studded team. Um, they finished 60-22. and 22. They did get swept by the Bulls, but then they swept the Pistons in the first round, and they beat the Hawks with Dominique 4-1 uh, to one in the Eastern Conference semifinals. So a very good team. Like Alex said, um, they were better the year before, but this is another year that they were also very, very good. I don't know if they were better the year before, but MJ wasn't as good the year before, wasn't, yeah. so they didn't have to play Michael Yeah, Jordan. they were probably better. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the Magic were better this year than they were just because they have another year together. Um, I misspoke, by the way, about the Suns. Danny Ainge was not on the Suns. He was on Portland. Um, and I, I think, I think I've got to take Portland with my last pick just because they're the only championship team left. So you can argue I, they were the worst team they played during that run, though. Yes, yeah, in ninety one, ninety two. Yeah. I well, Miami, Miami wasn't. I mean, Miami they were a playoff team, but they weren't great. I'm really I'm between. I'm gonna go with Portland, but I'm between ninety one, ninety two Portland in the championship. And ninety-seven, ninety-eight, Charlotte with B.J. Armstrong going off for that one game. And I, I will say that um, Danny Ainge played for Portland in ninety-one, ninety-two, and Phoenix in ninety-two. Oh, okay, he did. All right, so yeah. great. Danny Ainge just all over a bunch of losing championship teams after hey the now, Celtics hey run. Now. So, so was everyone in that decade, unless you were in Chicago. True, true. So I'll I'll defend my Portland pick. I guess it's two names. You got Danny Ainge. You got Clyde Drexler who people were comparing to MJ, which is, like, ridiculous to think about. But Drexler got his championship finally with Houston the second time they won in 95. Was the bonus on that team? What? Are you talking about Portland? 
Yeah. I don't think so. Because he was a star on Portland, but I don't know when he was. I, I actually have no... Clifford Robinson was on this team. I may be way off about this. Um, and then their coach was... Um, I, I know his name. I know his name. Their coach was uh, Rick Edelman, who coached in the league for years. Oh, yeah. So this is where he got his start. Well, he started there as an assistant. But I'm rounding out with a championship team. I'm not enthusiastic about that. I thought I was going to be stealing uh, the magic from 95-96. Similar like to uh, the Pistons. They weren't. It was an easy series, but it was a hurdle that they needed to jump over. And they and they did it. So yeah, that's uh, that was a good best of I think yeah. for, for I, I would a bunch love... of guys that didn't know a lot about those teams. Exactly. Who's for people who have never seen those teams play? Um, I'd love to see what people who have seen those teams play think about the way we went about this. So drop it in the comments or something. I don't know. Yeah, Sabonis by the way started in '95, so he was not, not on that team. Portland team. Okay. All right. Well, let's get to this new, not our new segment, but a new segment. We're calling it five rounds and we're going to have Doug and Keys go five rounds we're going to talk about UFC Keys I believe you're up first yeah so um, this new topic um, obviously the UFC is one of the only I'll, I'll call it a major sport or live sports going on right now with competition so Doug and I are starting five rounds and we're going to start round one with Glover Teixeira and Anthony Linehart Smith I did not catch the fights on Wednesday but I did catch the aftermath of this. That fight ended in the fifth round due to TKO. But what stood out was the fact that Anthony Smith, while he is a warrior and has the heart of a champion, was getting beat up in this fight and came back to the corner, um, I think in between the fourth and the fifth round, and said his teeth were looser. He could fall, hear his, feel his teeth falling out, and his corner set him back out there. Um, Chael Sonnen, among other people, blasted uh, his corner. And, and Jason Herzog, I think, who was his corner man, came out and took full responsibility for Anthony Smith taking all that damage, but it was just, it was tough to see. Like, Glover Teixeira's on top of him, punching him in the face, saying, I'm sorry, I have to do this, it's business. And Anthony Smith, while getting beat up, is like, it's okay, I understand. It was it was a bizarre moment, um, and the fallout, so weird, the fallout yeah. was nuts. Yeah, I mean, I to watch that, that was the main event. That was, for me, I thought it was going to be an Anthony Smith beatdown. I thought he was ready for it, um, but he was knocked up in the second round, and he never really recovered after that. Yeah. Round two, we're staying that same night. Ben Rothwell over OSP, Ovince St. Preux. Really a fight that was decided by the judges. I thought could have gone either way. Rothwell, to his credit, was in control for most of the fight. He really, like, if you're looking just by the eye perspective, he won the fight. But then if you look at the stats, you know, OSP had a better significant strike percentage. So if you get into that, then you can argue. But... Overall, great fight. OSP moves up to heavyweight, and Ben Rothwell, the guy from Wisconsin, only about an hour away from me, showed why he is so dominant. Yeah, I think the most surprising part about that is that OSP moves up in weight and was the slower guy, um, by all accounts, in that fight. Yeah. So that was interesting. He was running away from Big Ben for a lot of the fight. Yeah. I mean, it's a different power. Those those guys at 265 hit like literal Mack trucks. I would never want to get caught with one of those right hands. <laughs> Um, jumping into round three, staying with the heavyweights. This was a Saturday night. Um, Walt Harris and Alistair Overeem. Obviously, all of the stuff surrounding Walt Harris, the tragedy with his daughter last year, um, working his way back into the octagon. Um, major props to him. And it really looked like he was going to win this fight early. He stunned Overeem. But um, say all you want about Alistair Overeem's chin, and, and um, Paul Felder and Bisping were doing a great job of talking about it during the, the fight. Um Overeem recovered nicely, and then his experience took over. He's a he's a kickboxing Dutch kickboxing champion. I mean, he's been he's forty years old. He's been in the UFC for a while. He's beat some big names, and he just he was able to flatten Walt Harris. But that was that was a very interesting fight. And Walt Harris will be back, but Alistair Overeem, after a couple shaky fights, looked really really good. Yeah, he did. I think the off the um, ring story obviously it's a little bit more important with. Um, the death of his stepdaughter, but at the same time, inside the fight, and really, really entertaining main event. Um, round four, we're going back to Wednesday. Drew Dober over Alexander Hernandez. This was the third best fight of the night. And Dober, if you don't know him, get to know him because he's up and coming. He trained with Justin Gaethje, who just um, won not too long ago. Very impressive fighter. And this guy's going to be really good. He was 
taken down a little bit. He was taken down three times out of five, but at the same time, the way and the power that he puts behind his punches is going to put him right up there with some of the best if he can stay consistent. So a great fight by Dober. He moves up to 23-9. and nine. Yeah, Like I said um, before, I didn't catch the fights on Wednesday, but Drew Dober's name was all over Bleacher Report and Twitter and wherever else you consume MMA news. So definitely going to keep an eye out on him. And then for the fifth round, the final thing I want to touch on was just the lightweight title picture. Right now, the champion, the sitting champion, Khabib Nurmagomedov, um, I guess stuck in Russia or doing whatever he's doing, dealing with the coronavirus. His dad just got sick. He um, practices Ramadan. He's probably the most famous Muslim athlete on the face of the planet. Um, So we don't know when he's going to fight again. We would hope it's July, but it could be September. It could be even later than that. Then you have Justin Gaethje, who Doug was just talking about, who just won the lightweight interim title belt, who you would think is going to be next in line for this title shot. And he deserves it. But then you have Conor McGregor, who's coming off a win. And he's been going back and forth with Gaethje for probably, two, I think, a little over two years now or a year and a half, two years. Um, so you have a potential fight between Gaethje and Conor. You still have Tony Ferguson, who, even though he just lost, would, would be a good fight for Conor. Um, you could still have Conor and Khabib fight. Um, there's so many different ways they can go. There's so many um, exciting fights they can do. And the fact that the UFC is now up and rolling and can confidently put together uh, multiple events with limited consequences and no fans. The lightweight title picture in the next six months, they're, they're, we're going to see some incredible fights at 155. So I'm super excited for that. The path has been set to make these events successful. Obviously, fans make it better. They make more money with them being there. You can go on so so on and so forth about that. But they are successful without fans as well. So I think the way that they have this structure set up is going to allow them to have these special fights with the matchups you just mentioned and potential with other weight classes too. So now they have this groundwork, they can only go up from there. So good on Dana White. Whether you like him or not, he was kind of a trailblazer for trying live sports once again and was successful with it. Speaking of live sports, I do want to touch on another live sport that we had yesterday. Golf was back, which was big for me. Unfortunately, I could not watch because I was on the course myself Absolutely tearing it up. Best I've driven the ball in a long What'd you time, shoot? by the way. Uh, I played I played from 6,700 yards, and I shot 86. So I played pretty I'm good. 67 is pretty 67 is right? pretty far. I moved back a tee box. I'm yeah. trying, I'm to, saving, trying I, to get a little whoa. longer. If I break yeah. 100, I'm saving the scorecard. So 86 is a great it's a, it's Yeah, a great no, I went out there. I was It was the most consistent I've driven the ball in a while. But this is not about me. This is about professional golf being back. Uh, the TaylorMade Driving Relief is what they called it. It was at Seminole Golf Club in Florida. It was a skins match between Rory. Rory and DJ were on a team. Ricky and this guy named Matthew Wolf that you have never heard of before was on a team. Matthew came out sporting Crazy swing. unreal facial hair. And yes, funky swing. Um, all in all, I, we don't need to get into the specifics of it, but... All in all, five and a half million dollars was donated to charity, which is great. And it tied after 18, so it came to the closest to the pin contest. And Rory absolutely put one within 10 feet, won it for him and DJ. Don't like Dustin Johnson at all, but Rory's my number two guy. I was very happy to see that. I watched the highlights this morning. So love that. Love that golf is back. We've got uh, the first tournament is June 11th, so it's coming. it's coming around. As a casual golf fan, um, these teams seem one-sided. Yeah, I don't. I, it has to do with sponsorships. Um, the, the, if you're a casual golf fan, the match to watch for you is the match part two with Obviously. Brady and Peyton and Tiger and Phil. But yes, they are because Rory and DJ have been two of the best players in golf for the last ten years, and Ricky's obviously one of those guys. Well, probably not top ten, and Matthew Wolf is. With all due respect to him, he's an excellent golfer, but he's a nobody compared to these three guys. So it was weird. It was like, holy shit, you got Rory, you got DJ, you got fucking Ricky, and then you got Matthew Wolf. Are you serious? But the kid's a good player, and uh, it, this is good. This is good. Um, uh, prominence is the word I'm thinking of, but it's 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 good for him exposure. to get his brand out there. Exposure. Yeah, exposure. Um, but yeah, so I think the the reason they were all chosen was for sponsors, and it was weird seeing them all wear shorts. They have to wear pants on tour, but they were allowed That's to wear awesome. shorts yesterday. I love that. 
So that was good to watch. I, I didn't watch it live, but I did watch the highlights this morning. And Ricky just nails in the overtime shot, I guess. Um, now we're getting to our new segment, name pending, of course, as we like to say on this podcast. But we're calling it Good Week, Bad Week, and it's very simple. Who had a good week? Who had a bad week? And it doesn't have to be a person. It could be a thing. could be a team. could be a person. Um, I'm not going to go first. Keys, I'm going to let you go first since this is your baby. So let's hear it. Who had a good week? Who had a bad week? So good week, bad week. First off, good week, the UFC. Um, there was Yes, there were a couple of things with the, the Anthony Smith, I guess, controversy. But fights are up and running. Um, they're going again. Um, minor hiccups, but the UFC is doing its thing. So good week for the UFC. I also say another good week for New Jersey weather. I finally got 85 degrees and sunny. Um, that was fantastic. And then Bundesliga soccer, with a caveat, um, soccer is something that gets enhanced by the atmosphere. I think home field advantage matters a lot because of what the home field fans do. And so the atmosphere without fans was a little hit or miss. It felt like you were watching kind of like a rec game or something. But in terms of high-level competition, the Bundesliga was back. Who had a bad week? I'm going to say breaking up the 98 Bulls um, to this day still makes no sense. Jerry Reinsdorf, um, Jerry Krause, like we said before, baffling. I I still don't get it. So bad week for breaking up the 98 Bulls. Still hasn't aged well. And then a terrible week for Callum Hudson-Odoi, soccer player for Chelsea and in England International, um, was arrested this morning and released on bail. We don't know what happened, but all indications are that it was probably an assault of some sort domestic so not good for him uh tough week for helm i'm gonna Hudson uh, O'Doy. My, i got i i have one good week but i generally speaking it was a good week for sports you got bundesliga you got golf you got nascar you got ufc and you still have the kbl so we're moving in the right direction if you're a sports fan but my good week is iu basketball obviously this morning we all woke up to the news christian lander is reclassifying he's going to be a hoosier next year on campus very exciting go hoosiers baby go hoosiers you talk about and tune out if you're not an indiana fan or you don't go to indiana but you look at the roster for next year you got finnessy you got lander you got jerome hunter you got justin smith trace jackson davis al durham senior leader joey brunk race thompson armand franklin leal geronimo and trey galloway Things are brewing in Bloomington for next season. Oh, yeah, they are. It oh, might not yeah, just be a good are. week for the Hoosiers. It might be a good year for the Hoosiers. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but um, I got tingles when I saw Christian Lander. Uh, it's something that we've morning. been waiting for for a while. We thought it would, was going to happen, but got a little got a little weary, and it finally did happen. And having him being able to lob the ball up to Trace Jackson Davis is going to be a thing of beauty. I'm so excited for next season. It's fun because it's obviously we love it. Students, they're talented players, but also the players love it. Most of them are from Indiana. Most of them know each other. They play on Indiana Elite together. And so for them to come together the same year, it's going to be a lot of fun to, for us to watch and for them to play. And we don't have to watch Deron Davis play this year. It's a two-fold. shot. I love your honor. <laughs> I miss seeing him at Roy's. Um, all right, and my bad week is Big Ben's beard. He shaved his beard. Obviously, there's no hair there anymore. It is literally a bad week to be a, a beard on Big Ben's face. Simple as that. It's going to be a bad week to be a beard on my face, too. I think <laughs> this baby's leaving soon. It was a bad week to be a beard on my face as I am clean shaven. <laughs> We're inching closer to society, so I feel like I should look like part two. (laughs) Um, Good week for competition. This has been the past five weeks, but competition and not participation trophies and and earning everything and being a competitor is back. Michael Jordan's attitude and ego at some points leads us to that, and it's going to be very fun to see how that affects sports as we know it in the present day once those get back to normal. Bad day to be a Chicago White Sox or a Chicago White Sox fan. Alec, you touched on it. This is Jerry Reinsdorf's team. I would say the same thing about the Bulls, but I trust that they have some new executives in there that can potentially look the other way from Reinsdorf. But the White Sox, Reinsdorf's their main guy. He didn't want to pay Machado the money, so Machado goes to San Diego. This is a common theme for the Southsiders, but it is a bad day to be a White Sox fan. Who knows? I want them to be to improve, but 
this does not help their image. Um, before I do another fabulous job of bringing this show to an end, uh, I'm sure you knew this, Doug, but Keys, did you know that uh, they bull- the Bulls brought Doug Collins back and he's a senior advisor for the Bulls for like the last four years? thought that was very interesting. Because no not anymore, though. He just left. They, did he get his – so they haven't updated his – page then on uh the bulls website as of like two months ago when they yeah. fired pax garpax that he got rid of too i believe so i think it was a little bit before maybe i don't but know but it was just recently it's yeah. worth exploring the relationship between doug collins and michael jordan because who was the coach that mj came back to play for doug collins for the wizards um and that that was because he was the executive vice president but there were he Doug Collins was who MJ played for again. Yeah, there's something there between those two, um, and I think that relationship. Obviously, we're not probably not going to talk about it next week, but it's something for you all to think about while you're listening to this podcast. That's going to do it for today. Be sure to tune in next week for another sideline report. I was walking down the street when out the corner of my eye I saw a pretty little thing approaching me. She said, "I never seen a man."